You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in this week, and I have a bit of a different show format this week. If you have an IRA or a 401k or some other type of qualified retirement plan, it could be a 403b or a 457 plan, you are not going to want to miss what I talk about on this program. We have no guest expert today. I'll be taking the entire program to talk to you about investing in IRAs and 401ks. And I want to challenge you to think about these programs, these tax-qualified retirement accounts, perhaps a bit differently. If you listen to last week's program, I talked to you about the superstar investor of the Great Depression, a gentleman by the name of Jesse Livermore. And one of his investing bits of sage wisdom was that the herd is always eventually wrong. And in order to start this conversation today, I want to talk to you a bit about herd mentality. Now, herd mentality, simply defined, is adopting the same behavior as the people around you without pausing to think through that behavior to see if it really makes sense. Herd mentality really means you're adhering to the status quo without looking at things from other perspectives to see if these other perspectives might make more sense. Now, when you study herd mentality historically, you see that Mr. Livermore certainly had a point. Let me give you an example. You may be old enough to remember the dot-com tech stock bubble of the late 1990s. During that time frame, the herd thought it made sense to invest in companies that had technological promise but had never made a profit. In fact, we're seeing companies that have never made a profit go public today. Uber is the most recent one. In fact, in their disclosure documents, they state, we may never achieve profitability. Well, back during the technology bubble run-up, the technology stock run-up, as this craze intensified, the idea of investing in the stock of companies that had never made a profit just became normal to the herd. Now, just a few years prior to the technology bubble building, most in the herd would never have considered investing in a company that was losing money. In fact, if you invested some of your assets in a company that was losing money, you would have been considered by just about everybody you knew, just about everyone else in the herd would have said you were crazy. But herd mentality changes. And as herd mentality shifted during this technology bubble buildup, the perspective of the herd changed by a full 180 degrees. Now, instead of saying you're crazy to invest in a company that has never made a profit, the perspective was, you're crazy not to invest in these companies. Now, let me just give you an example of this. Some of you who are listening today may remember a company, Pets.com. In fact, way back when they had an add-on during the Super Bowl. 
this ad, you may remember, had a talking sock dog that tried to convince pet owners to buy their pet supplies online. Now, the company was founded in 1998 and just two short years later went public. And when they went public, they took $300 million of investment capital in it. Now, during its first fiscal year, the company spent $12 million on advertising to generate their sales. What was their sales total? $619,000. Let me repeat that. They spent $12 million on advertising to generate sales of $619,000. Forgive my cynicism, forgive my criticism, but you don't have to be very smart to have a $19 advertising budget to make a sale that brings in a dollar. And that's exactly what Pets.com did. Would you invest in that company? If I came to you and said, you're such a nice person, I have a great investing opportunity for you. This company spends $19 in advertising for every dollar they take in. How many shares would you like? Well, as crazy as it sounds, the herd did invest in that company. When Pets.com went public, investors bid shares of that company up to $14 per share, despite the company never having made a profit and going negative $18 for every dollar they generated in sales. Now, Pets.com may have a record. I'm not sure. I didn't research it. But Pets.com closed its doors less than a year after taking the company public. When the company liquidated, the company's stock was selling for just 19 cents per share, proving again that the herd is usually eventually wrong. Now, this fact that the herd is almost always wrong can be seen time and time again throughout history. Herd mentality hasn't changed in thousands of years because human emotions haven't changed much in hundreds of years either. Let's go back several hundred years. Have you ever heard of something called tulip mania? It's another example of this predictable herd behavior. Now, tulip mania occurred in the late 1600s. It was very similar to the tech stock bubble that I just described as far as human behavior was concerned. The only difference was instead of investors flocking to tech stocks that had no earnings, the herd in this event was drawn to tulip bulbs. Like stocks did during the tech stock bubble, tulip bulbs during tulip mania skyrocketed in price. Prior to this tulip bulb price spike, the herd would have thought it to be the height of foolishness to invest their entire annual salary in just one tulip bulb. But that's exactly what happened as the perspective of the herd changed from thinking this behavior was downright crazy to thinking that not only was the behavior normal, if you didn't jump on the tulip bandwagon, you must be crazy. Now, you probably already know the end of this story. The herd was once again proven to be dead wrong as tulip prices crashed back to reality. Leo Tolstoy, 
a very prolific author, said this, Wrong does not cease to be wrong because the majority share in it. That's profound. Mark Twain said it this way, Whenever you find yourself to be on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Why? Mr. Tolstoy and Mark Twain knew that the herd is almost always eventually wrong. Now, why have I taken nearly one segment of this radio program to make this point? This is also true for many folks when it comes to using traditional retirement plans to save for retirement. Think about it. Nearly every worker participates in a 401k because that's what the herd does. In nearly every office and factory in the country, the herd then participates in water cooler talk about how the 401k is doing. See, we're told the best way to save for retirement is to use a 401k or IRA. And rather than question whether this is true, we just do what the rest of the herd does. But on today's program, I want to give you some information and some perspective and ask you the question, could the herd once again be wrong when it comes to using an IRA or a 401k to save for retirement? You know, we talk about this in detail at an event that we have coming up in August. It will be held on the 13th at Sunnybrook Country Club in Granville. The event begins at 6 p.m. and concludes at 7.30 p.m. We not only talk about retirement accounts, we talk about Social Security maximization as well. If you'd like to learn more or register to attend, you can visit socialsecuritydinner.com. The website, again, is socialsecuritydinner.com. I'll be back after these words, and we'll dig into whether or not the herd could be wrong again when it comes to IRAs and 401ks. I'll be back. Keep listening. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening today. I have a special format for today's program. We are asking the question today if the herd could be wrong when it comes to putting money in IRAs and 401ks and other types of retirement plans, at least in the case of many taxpayers. In the first segment of today's program, I showed how the herd was wrong when it came to investing in technology stocks that had never made a profit. In fact, I pointed out that trend is continuing yet today. I talked about tulip mania, which occurred in the 1600s. At that time, the herd thought it made sense to invest the annual salary of a skilled worker in one tulip bulb, behavior that just a few years earlier they would have deemed to be crazy, was now considered to be normal. Well, in this segment, I want to break away from herd thinking for a moment and look at 401k plans and IRA accounts 
for what they really are, and I want to break down what these plans might cost a taxpayer, perhaps even you. Now, if you think back to when you first started to invest in an IRA or a 401k, I would dare to bet that you were told three things. See if these three things ring a bell. You were told probably one, you can put money in this IRA or 401k and you'll get a tax deduction or a tax write-off for your contribution. If you put $5,000 a year in this 401k or IRA, the income you have to report on your tax return will be reduced by that $5,000 contribution. The second thing that you were probably told is that you could invest that contribution wherever you'd like. And assuming the investment grew, all that growth would take place on a tax-deferred basis. The third thing that you were probably told is that this process is of great benefit to you because it allows you to put money in a retirement account when you're working and in a higher tax bracket and permits you to take money out of the retirement account when you're retired and you're in a lower tax bracket. Now, assuming you were told those three things, and assuming you've been investing in retirement accounts for a period of time, there's a very good chance that those three things may not be true for you because tax rates have changed over the years. Now, I want to add one additional factor or element to this conversation that we're going to have. And that is that after the Trump tax package was passed at the end of 2017, permanent tax cuts were made to the business and corporate side of the tax code. But personal income taxes were only reduced for eight tax years. In 2026, unless something changes, unless it's extended, tax rates will revert back to the prior higher rates that were in effect in 2017. So there's seven more tax years where tax rates are low. Now, with that perspective, let me break away from herd thinking and have you consider something. Consider this and think about it for a minute. The deduction that you receive for putting money in a retirement account is not a deduction at all. Let me repeat that. The deduction that you get for putting money in a retirement account is not a deduction at all. Tax deductions, I would define this way. Tax deductions are reductions to income that occur from a financial transaction. So, for example, if you make a cash donation to a qualified charity, you get to reduce your income by the amount of that cash donation. There are no strings attached to that transaction. You write a check to a charity, you reduce your income, assuming you can obviously itemize your deductions by the amount of that contribution. It's a very simple transaction. You donate money to an organization that enjoys tax-free, tax-exempt status, and you get a deduction in the amount of the money that you donated. 
Now, this is absolutely not true when it comes to a deduction, and I use that term loosely, that you take for a contribution to an IRA or 401k. See, the tax deductions that you get for contributing to an IRA or a 401k are not really deductions at all. They're loans made to you by the IRS. Think about this for a minute. A true tax deduction does not have a future string attached. If I write a check to pay my church, make a donation to my church, I don't have to reclaim that deduction as income at some future point. I have to make a future claim on any withdrawals that I make from my IRA or 401k. So the tax deductions that you get for contributing to an IRA or 401k are not really deductions at all. They're loans made to you by the IRS. At some future point, when you begin to take withdrawals from the IRA or 401k account, the IRS will require you to begin making payments on that loan. This is because the IRS places a lien on your retirement account as soon as you reduce your income by the amount of the contribution on your income tax return. This lien on your retirement account is not unlike the lien that a banker might place on your house when you take out a mortgage loan when you buy the house. Now, in the case of the mortgage loan, the value of the house collateralizes the loan. In the case of the IRA or 401k, the loan is collateralized by the value of the retirement account. Now, here's the key. The difference between the mortgage loan and the loan the IRS makes you when you take a deduction for a contribution to an IRA or 401k is that the terms of the mortgage loan are defined in advance in the mortgage loan documents. The terms can't be changed unless both you and the banker agree to change the terms, which could happen if the mortgage were to be refinanced. Now think about this for a minute. Would you take out a mortgage if the banker not only got principal and interest payments from you, but also got an ownership share in the house? And the banker could at any time change the terms of the loan? You'd probably agree that someone would have to be crazy to enter into a loan agreement like that. But that may be exactly what you're doing when you put money in an IRA or 401k and take this income tax deduction. The repayment terms for the loan the IRS makes to you when you take this deduction for a contribution can change if Congress changes the tax rules or a new president is elected who decides to revamp the tax code. This lien on your IRA or 401k account remains attached to that retirement account for as long as you have the account. Essentially, what happens is the IRS now becomes a joint investing partner in your account. Every time you take a withdrawal from your retirement account during your lifetime, your investing partner in the retirement account, the IRS, will be there with their handout demanding their share. Now, to be fair, there are instances, there are examples when people are retired and they're not paying any tax 
on the distributions they take from their IRA. So for some taxpayers, this can be a good deal. However, many taxpayers have incomes that are higher than that and will require that they pay tax on their IRA distributions. Now, the IRS's share, as I mentioned, can change as tax laws change. Here's a question for you. Picture one of the Washington politicians, or maybe a group of them, in your mind. If you've got that picture in your mind, now ask yourself this question. Do you trust them not to tinker with the tax code? And do you trust that changes they make to the tax code are going to be in your best interest? Let me just, in the time we have left in this segment, walk you through a hypothetical example. Now, this example is hypothetical. I've kept it simple to make the point. But let's just assume we have a 30-year-old worker. Like all 30-year-old workers, this worker has dreams of retiring comfortably someday and decides to do that, that she will follow the herd and contribute $5,000 a year to a retirement account. Now, just for discussion's sake, we'll assume this 30-year-old taxpayer is in a combined income tax bracket of 20%. That means the $5,000 contribution to the retirement account saves her $1,000 in income taxes. $5,000 times 20% is $1,000. Now let's assume this worker contributes to the IRA for 10 years and then stops and then lets the account grow on a tax-deferred basis until her retirement. She saves $1,000 for each year that she contributes to the IRA. She does so for 10 years. Her tax savings are $10,000. Now let's assume the IRA grows at 4% annually until she retires. Obviously, if I use a different growth rate here in this example, it could change the numbers I'm going to share with you dramatically. But we'll just assume 4% and at retirement, let's assume, let's assume she elects to take only required minimum distributions from this account. We'll assume she lives to age 90 and we'll assume that her tax rate is 20% across the board, that it never changes. She has saved $10,000 in taxes during her contributing years and her cost to pay back the IRS as she takes money out, her total tax bill will be $101,562. Is that a good deal? You have saved $10,000 in taxes as you contribute. You pay $101,562 in this example by the time the loan is repaid. Now that assumes tax rates don't change. If the taxpayer was in a combined tax bracket of 30% as she took these payouts or required minimum distributions, the total cost to pay back this loan, assuming death at age 90 and a 4% growth rate, would be $150,842. That's significant. In the next segment, I'll be talking to you about potential opportunities. Stay with me. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're tuning in today. We've got a special show today. We're talking about IRAs and 401ks and asking if the herd could possibly be wrong. In the last segment, I gave you the example of a 30-year-old worker who contributed $5,000 a year to an IRA for 10 years. We assumed in this hypothetical example, this worker was in a 20% combined tax bracket, which would save this worker $1,000 per year in income taxes for 10 years. We assumed the worker would let the IRA then just accumulate after the 10 years of contributions, and at retirement, this worker would take only required minimum distributions, as many of you know, Required minimum distributions are distributions that you have to take once you attain age 70 and a half. Assuming a 4% growth rate, assuming she lives to 90, and assuming the tax rates don't change, she saves $10,000 in taxes as she contributes to the IRA, but on the distribution end, she pays back taxes of $101,562. Now, if the growth rate was 6%, the cost to pay back the IRS would increase from 101000 to 203000 So the IRS, in exchange for a $10,000 loan, we commonly call these deductions, but in exchange for that loan made to this taxpayer, could end up with gains of 20-fold or more based on perfectly reasonable assumptions. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. If you're collecting Social Security, what I am going to share with you next is probably old news. Ever since 1983, Social Security benefits have been taxable for many taxpayers. And here's the crazy thing about the taxation of Social Security benefits that a lot of folks don't know. The tax thresholds for Social Security benefits have not increased since 1983 either. In other words, the calculation has not been indexed for inflation. So every year, as the dollar is devalued, as Social Security benefits go up due to the cost of living adjustment that is sometimes credited, more Social Security benefits for more taxpayers become subject to tax. Now, the way that taxes on Social Security benefits are calculated is a bit convoluted, and I'm sure that probably comes as no surprise to you, as many things in the tax code are convoluted. But simply put, you have to go through a calculation that's known as a modified adjusted gross income calculation. What is this? It's quite simply half of your Social Security benefits, half of your household Social Security benefits, plus all your other income. So modified gross income, modified adjusted gross income, rather, is half your Social Security benefits, plus all your other income. Now, what is all your other income? Well, it could be pension income, could be interest income, also included in interest income, would be tax-free interest income. Yes, if you have too much, too much tax-free interest income, you could find your Social Security benefits are now subject to tax. 
It would also include IRA withdrawals. So when you start taking your required minimum distributions, even if you don't want to take them, you'll be required to do that. If you've saved enough money in retirement accounts and your required minimum distributions are large enough, these distributions could cause your Social Security to be taxed at a higher rate. So it's half your Social Security plus pension income plus interest income, including tax-free interest income, plus IRA withdrawals, plus capital gain income, plus earned income, plus business income, plus any income you might have from partnerships or rental property. Now, there's only two exceptions. There's only two kinds of income that does not get added into this formula to determine how much of your Social Security is taxable. One are distributions from a Roth IRA. More on this in a moment. If you're not familiar with a Roth IRA, a Roth IRA is simply the polar opposite of a traditional IRA. As I talked about in the second segment of today's program, when you put money in an IRA or 401k, you get a tax write-off for the contribution that you make. This is not true with a Roth IRA. There's no tax write-off for the contribution. You pay tax on the contribution that you make to a Roth. As your contribution to a traditional IRA or 401k grows, it grows on a tax-deferred basis. In a Roth, it grows on a tax-free basis. When you take money out of a traditional IRA or 401k after retirement, or you start to take required minimum distributions at age 70 and a half, all those withdrawals are taxable. They're considered to be income. In the case of a Roth, all those withdrawals are tax-free. And in the case of a Roth, required minimum distributions are not required. They're not mandated. So you can take money out of a Roth as you see fit whenever you want to. And withdrawals from a Roth do not count in making your Social Security more taxable. Now, there is another exception as well, and these would be withdrawals from a properly designed guaranteed life insurance contract. But those are the only two exceptions. Other than that, you take half your Social Security plus all your other income, and you get what's known as modified adjusted gross income. Now, if you're a single taxpayer and your modified adjusted gross income is over $25,000 annually, then 50% of that excess amount is the amount of your Social Security income subject to income tax. Now, if that number goes over $34,000 and you're a single taxpayer, then 85% of the excess is the amount of Social Security benefits subject to income tax. Now, under current law, 85% of your Social Security benefits would be the maximum that would be subject to tax. Now, if you're a married taxpayer and you file a joint tax return, if your modified adjusted gross income total, and again, simply put, it's your Social Security, half your Social Security plus all your other income. Modified adjusted gross income is half your Social Security plus all other income except Roth withdrawals, and income from a properly designed insurance contract. 
If you're married and that exceeds $32,000, then 50% of the excess is the amount of your Social Security income subject to tax. If that number exceeds $44,000, then 85% of the excess is the amount of Social Security benefits subject to income tax. Again, in no event is more than 85% of your Social Security subject to income tax. So in the case of this 30-year-old taxpayer that contributes to a traditional IRA for 10 years, then lets it accumulate, and then takes only required minimum distributions, depending upon her situation when she reaches age 70 and has to start taking required minimum distributions now from this IRA, when she has to start repaying the loan the IRS made her, when she took that write-off on her taxes, she could actually end up having to claim $1.85 in income for every dollar she takes out of her retirement account if her Social Security is taxable. This adds to the tax burden. And because people have been putting more money in retirement accounts over time, And because these thresholds, the levels at which Social Security benefits become taxable, have not changed since 1983, the more you take out of an IRA, the more likely it is that your Social Security benefits will be adversely affected in the form of tax. Now, in the next segment, I'll be talking about some solutions. Stay with me. Welcome back to RLA Radio. Glad you're listening today. I'm Dennis Tubergen. We are talking today about IRAs and 401ks and asking if perhaps the herd has been wrong. I explained that when you put money in an IRA and a 401k, the deduction that you get for making that contribution is not really a deduction. It's essentially a loan that the IRS makes to you because at some future point, when you start to take money out of your retirement account, the IRS will require that you claim all withdrawals as income and begin to pay back that loan. If you're just joining us, I gave a hypothetical example in the last segment of a 30-year-old taxpayer who's in a 20% tax bracket who puts $5,000 a year into an IRA. She does so for 10 years for total contributions of $50,000 and total tax savings of 20% of that total or $10,000. I then assume that the retirement account assets would grow at a rate of 4% and that the taxpayer would die at age 90 and take only required minimum distributions from the account beginning at age 70 and a half. In other words, this taxpayer is only going to take out what she's required to take out. Assuming no change in tax rates, she will pay over $100,000 in taxes on her distributions, and she saved $10,000 in taxes during her contribution years. And that assumes no change in tax rates, and it also does not include the tax that she might pay on her Social Security benefits 
as a result of those required minimum distributions, increasing her income, which means she may pay tax on a greater portion of her Social Security benefits. Now, here's my question for you. Do you trust the Washington politicians not to change the IRA and 401k rules in their favor? It's a pretty important question. And depending on how things play out, and I don't have a crystal ball that works either, the answer to this question could potentially be worth tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to you. Now, the reality of the matter is that the politicians have a perfect record when it comes to tinkering with the tax code. So much so, the only thing we know for sure is that change will likely happen. And typically, when these changes happen, they are often not in favor of the taxpayer. And don't think that because a particular tax rule has been in effect for a long time that it can't change. There have been many times in U.S. history, as well as in other countries, when long-standing tax rules have been suddenly and radically changed. One example is that at one time in U.S. history, the income tax was declared unconstitutional and was outlawed. But, as you might expect, over time, the Washington politicians predictably managed to figure out how to get a majority of the population paying income taxes. The story is an interesting one, and I will briefly discuss it. It happened the way things often happen. First, the politicians begin to discuss an idea. They float a trial balloon. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is running for president, did this just recently, floating the idea of a tax on those with a $50 million net worth or more. After the trial balloon is floated, provided it gets some traction, the idea might be implemented, but... The politicians promise only a small group will be affected, usually the wealthy, as the class warfare card is an easy one to play. The political rhetoric surrounding this action is predictable, and it hasn't changed in 2,000 years when the rhetoric was used in the Roman Empire. The politicians stand on their soapboxes and declare they are finally going to make the evil rich pay their fair share. Initially, the tax change may only affect the wealthy, but as you might expect, over time, the change eventually affects nearly everyone. And this is exactly what happened with the income tax. The income tax began in 1862 when President Lincoln enacted an emergency income tax to finance the Civil War. A minimum tax rate of 3% was the law. Now, that income tax was in place for 10 years which was the length of time this emergency income tax was to last. And in 1872, the income tax went away. Then in 1894, the income tax was reintroduced and the rate was 2%. However, the very next year in 1895, the Supreme Court declared the income tax was unconstitutional. But by 1909, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was proposed that would allow Congress to levy an income tax. And by 1913, just four years later, the 16th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. 
and the income tax was once again a reality for Americans. But at first, as the politicians promised, it affected only a very small group of wealthier citizens. That's how the income tax was passed. In fact, the political atmosphere at the time was protectionist and progressive. The political rhetoric that the income tax would finally make their rich pay their fair share, their fair share played really, really well. Now, initially, the income tax rate was 1%, and only 1 in 217 people were affected by the tax. However, by 1939, 1 in 32 citizens paid a 4% tax rate, so more people and a higher rate. And by 1943, just four years later, 1 in 3 wage earners were paying the income tax. And in 1943, withholding of taxes from paychecks began. Tax withholding was the golden key that allowed the politicians to get a greater portion of each worker's earnings in the form of tax revenue. If a worker didn't have to write a check for his or her taxes, but instead the taxes were withheld from the worker's paycheck, it would be far easier to collect taxes. So, will future tax rates change? Well, to capture a greater percentage of retirement plan assets, the Washington politicians could just increase income tax rates or make Social Security benefits 100% taxable subject to the formula. That would again change the payback terms of the loan that you got from the IRS when you contributed to the IRA or the 401k. Now, one of the options that you have under the new tax code is to think about doing Roth conversions or IRA distributions while tax rates are lower. See, until 2026, we are operating under tax rates that are lower than they will be in 2026. So in other words, as I said in a prior segment, in 2026, tax rates revert back to the higher rates that were in effect in 2017. Now, what is a Roth conversion? Well, anyone that wants to can now do a Roth conversion. As I talked about earlier in this segment, a Roth is completely tax-free. If you have a traditional IRA or 401k, through a series of steps, you can make that a tax-free Roth. You simply need to pay tax on the amount that you convert. So here is a valuable exercise for everyone that has listened to today's special format program. Go through and calculate what it would cost you in taxes to divorce yourself from the IRS by doing Roth IRA conversions or traditional IRA distributions as compared to leaving the money in and using it during retirement. Because tax rates today are lower, many of you could benefit greatly and potentially save a lot of money in taxes and potentially receive your Social Security benefits during retirement on a much more tax-advantaged basis. Now, we talk about all these strategies and go through them in detail at our upcoming event that we'll be having on August 13 at Sunnybrook Country Club. Now, Sunnybrook Country Club is in Granville. It's on Port Sheldon. And if you would like to register to attend or you would like to get more information, you can just simply go visit socialsecuritydinner.com. 
The website, again, is socialsecuritydinner.com. There is availability there to register or to get more information. We will talk about maximizing Social Security at the event. We'll talk about minimizing taxes on your IRA. We'll give you several case studies on Roth conversions and alternatives. And if you are at all doing any retirement income planning, this event could potentially be the most important event that you'll attend uh, perhaps ever. Uh, So again, go to socialsecuritydinner.com. You can get more information or register there. And for all of you that attend as well, uh, there will be opportunities for you to get our new best-selling book, The Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. So again, the website, socialsecuritydinner.com. Go check it out. Love to see you at the event on the 13th. That's all the time I have for today. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back next week with a more traditionally formatted program. Talk to you then. 